We've been looking at the Shema Israel, and as we round the corner towards the end of that prayer, we're asking the question today, what is it that is referred to when we are to love God with our soul? And so we've thought about the various other parts of this prayer, this blessing. And so once again, uh, watch this short video just reminding us by way of introduction about the Shema, but then digging into the question, what does it mean to uh, love God with our soul? Watch this. For thousands of years, every morning and evening, Jewish people have prayed these well-known words as a way of expressing their devotion to God. They're called the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And as for you, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. We're going to look at the word soul. The Hebrew word is nefesh. It occurs over 700 times in the Old Testament. The common English translation of this word is soul, and that's kind of unfortunate. Here's why. The English word soul comes with lots of baggage from ancient Greek philosophy. It's the idea that the soul is a non-physical, immortal essence of a person that's contained or trapped in their body to be released at death. It's a ghost in the machine kind of idea. This notion is totally foreign to the Bible. It's not at all what nephesh means in biblical Hebrew. The most basic meaning of nephesh is throat. Like when the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness, they're hungry and thirsty, and they say to God, we miss the cucumbers and melons we had in Egypt. Now our nephesh has dried up. Or when Joseph was hauled off into slavery in Egypt, his nephesh was put into iron shackles. But nephesh doesn't only mean throat. Since your whole life and body depend on what comes in and out of your throat, nephesh could also be used to refer to the whole person. Like in Genesis, there were 33 nephesh in Jacob's family, that is, 33 people. In the Torah, a murderer is called a nephesh slayer, and a kidnapper is called a nephesh thief. On the first pages of the Bible, both humans and animals are called a living nephesh. And if the life breath has left a human or animal, the nephesh remains. It's just called a dead nephesh, that is, a corpse. So, in the Bible, people don't have a nephesh. Rather, they are a nephesh, a living, breathing, physical being. Now, that might surprise you because most people assume the Bible says the soul is what survives apart from the body after death. And while the biblical authors do have a concept of people existing after death, waiting for their resurrection, they rarely talk about it. And when they do, they don't use the word nephesh. So even though nephesh is often translated as soul, the Hebrew word really refers to the whole human as a living physical organism. In fact, this is why biblical people can often use this word to refer to themselves. And it gets translated me or I. Like in Psalm 119, most translations read, let me live that I may praise you. In Hebrew, the poet literally says, let my nephesh live that it may praise you. By using nephesh, the poet emphasizes that their entire being, their life and their body, offer thanks to God. In the Song of Songs, the young woman constantly refers to her lover as the one my nephesh loves. And of course, love isn't just an intellectual experience, it's an emotion that activates your whole body, your entire nephesh. This helps us understand the brilliance of other biblical poets who could combine multiple meanings of nephesh in one place. Like in Psalm 42, we read, as the deer pants for the water, so my nephesh pants after you. My nephesh thirsts for the living God. So on a physical level, your throat can be thirsty. 
like a deer's. But then that physical thirst can become a metaphor for how your whole physical being longs to know and be known by your creator. Which brings us all the way back to the Shema. To love God with all of your nefesh means to devote your whole physical existence to your creator, the one who granted us these amazing bodies in the first place. It's about offering your entire being with all of its capabilities and limitations in the effort to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the Hebrew word for soul. Back um, many, many years ago, I had a friend that uh, we got to know when we lived in, in uh, Spruce Grove near Edmonton in Alberta. And uh, he was a, the chief pilot for a company and was uh, responsible for flying the corporate jet all over the place. And when we moved to Vancouver, to my delight, uh, he brought his jet to Vancouver for servicing. And then every time they finished servicing the airplane, uh, he would have a test flight, a quick little test flight. And he would always call me to see if I wanted to just have a little ride. And oh my goodness, it was one of the most exciting things. So we would literally take off from Richmond, fly over and, you know, over Vancouver Island and back. And in 15, 20 minutes, it was all over, but it was a thrill. And uh, I remember uh, the, the one story he told me was fascinating. He said, um, he, he knew he had reached his goal when the tower told a 737 to get out of his way because he was going to land before the big airplane coming behind. So I loved, um, we would reach full velocity before he got to the end of the runway and so you felt thrust back into your chair and we just soared into the sky and I just loved every time he called and said, it's time for another uh, test flight, do you want to come? I never said no, no matter what else was going on, it could be canceled. This one time, I was really interested in, in something I heard him say to, I, I guess, to the tower or to air traffic control, whatever. He, he identified himself in his airplane, and then he said, there are three souls on board. And I thought that was a very interesting way to describe who was on board. I guess it has a long history in the travel world, and um, when technically... Um, captains of ships or the captain of an airplane refers to the people uh, who are his passengers. Um, he refers to them as souls. And, and I really loved that idea um, that the report was that there are three souls on board. Um, we also have heard some terrible stories of air crashes and so on. And again, the terminology comes up that talks about the number of souls that perished. And so, as you've just heard, soul refers to the whole body, the whole being of a person. And as we make our way through the, the Shema Yisrael, um, what we're thinking about is the fact that the whole soul, the whole person, the whole living being of a person is called on to love God. And so I want to pair that this morning with a verse, as I've mentioned, in Romans chapter 12, where Paul says some things about what we are encouraged or urged to do about our whole living being, our whole soul. Um, Romans 12 verse 1 begins with a, an interesting word. It's the word therefore. My dad was a pastor, and um, 
that was to my chagrin. Sometimes it was sometimes something I was proud of. Other times it was times I didn't want to be known as a pastor's kid. All the uh, other times you got some perks because you're a pastor's kid. But I remember his sermons. I mean, I remember them, you know, sometimes verbatim. Sometimes I heard them more than once. And I heard him say this one thing really often. And every time he said it, I went, oh, no, he's going to say this again. So he said, every time you come to the word therefore and wait for it, he said, you should always ask yourself, what's it there for? And I would groan. But people would refer to that and say that it helped them understand and through the years, uh, I, again, um, I've realized that when you come across the word therefore, guess what? You should ask, what's it there for? So that word in Romans 12, verse 1, is very important. It's, it's kind of the linchpin of the letter to Romans. It's the, the hinge. And we, we can't go ahead with Romans 12 if we don't ask the question, what's this therefore therefore and what Paul is referring to is all of the things that he has talked about so if you go back all the way to the beginning of Romans you will find that it is a very technical almost legal document or or legal explanation of all the things that God has done for us so let me read to you from Romans 12 verse 1 so that you know where I'm going with this. Paul says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. Therefore, I urge you by the mercies of God. And if, if I were to just sort of interject a few words that might, might clarify when he says, therefore, I urge you, he uses the term for a legal counsel. Um, it's also the word that we have used uh, in the New Testament for the Holy Spirit. It's a paraclete, the, someone who is called alongside to counsel. And so this verse fits in with the character of the book of Romans because it's a legal uh, document, really, that we're seeing. And so um, he, he's going to argue something and he says, I, I want to urge you as your, you know, counselor, you, your friend at court about something. Now, it's very interesting that while Paul is not shy to be demanding, in this case, he doesn't demand something. He doesn't require something. He urges. And it's, it's that whole gentle nudging notion that he's, he's capturing and he's, he's, he's not there to lay out the law for us, even though this is something of a legal document. He says, because of, and here's where the therefore begins to make sense for us, um, he says, because of the mercies of God, and the mercies of God r refers to the, the sympathy of God, um, the, the grace of God, the kindness of God, all of the things that, that he has carefully laid out through the many chapters of Romans. And if you'd like to do some digging, Romans is a great uh, theology book, really, about all of the things that God has done for us. It's, it's about justification. It's about sanctification. It's about atonement. It's about um, 
law and judgment and condemnation and um, who is under condemnation, why they're under condemnation and what God has done about the condemnation upon humankind. But all of it now sort of um, flows forward. As Paul says, because of all of this, I I want to, to give you some advice as your counsel. So he says, I, I, I urge you by the mercies of God to present, and that's a word that is usually used to mean to bring before the magistrate. So again, he's you know, reverting to this legal language, and he says, with all of this legal stuff in our pockets, now there's something I want to urge you to do. Here's, here's the counsel that the lawyer is going to bring to you in view of all of that. Bring before the magistrate, and remember, God is our magistrate. Paul has kind of pointed that out in his, in his letter. And he says, I want to urge you to bring before the magistrate your bodies. And then he says, I want you to bring them, or I urge you to bring them as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable, um, and that's a word that means really pleasing to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So the what and why of Romans 12 kind of hinges on the therefore, and it moves out of the hinge into saying what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. So Paul's language then is very, very, very interesting. He he, he talks about what we can offer God or what we should offer God. And when he talks about what we should offer God, he uses really, really strange language. Um, in the book of Romans, we have kind of a, a, an echo back to the Old Testament, to the old law. And all of the ways that the old law was covered or was satisfied or was provided for and Paul now goes back to use religious legal language but he uses it in in a really different way I mean we we might actually call it hyperbole the way he describes it what he describes as the thing that we can do with our bodies um, has the language of physical um, religious activity in sacrifices and offerings given to appease God, and yet he twists the words I- into ways that they couldn't possibly be actually true as, as literal sacrifices or literal offerings. So as he gives us these, these kind of uh, innuendos, these, these kind of vague um, images of what we can do, he uses the language that would be familiar with the Old Testament sacrifices, but he says, the, the, the way I want you to, to bring a sacrifice to God is like this. I, I want you to bring to God your bodies as a living, holy sacrifice. A living, dead sacrifice is really the language. Because the term for the sacrifice that he uses there is a, it's burned up. It's, it's, a, it's a burned up offering. So again, here, here's Paul using language in a different way. 
and says, what I want you to bring is a sacrifice. You're, you know what that means. But what I want you to bring is a living sacrifice. And so if we're thoughtful, we would ask, well, how could a sacrifice be a living sacrifice? And well, there were some living sacrifices in the Old Testament. Um, there were the scapegoats. They, you know, at least the scapegoat got to run away into the wilderness. But normally sacrifices in the Old Testament, and legally speaking, were, were dead things, were, were slain sacrifices. And so time after time, we see that the offerings are brought to God and they were often slain. They were sacrificed. They, they were dead animals as they were presented before God through the, um, the tabernacle and then all the way into the temple, even in the New Testament. And then coupled with that, um, Paul says this living sacrifice that you're bringing is, and the sacrifice is a, a word that means ac actually burned up in smoke. So he's saying, I want you to bring something that is living dead. It's a living dead thing that I want you to bring to God. And, and so we discover that what Paul's talking about is not an actual sacrifice in any sense of, of the term sacrifice. He's saying that there's a new way that you can bring a sacrifice. And the way that you can bring a sacrifice is by bringing yourself as a living offering to God, a living, as it were, dead sacrifice. And then he says, when you bring that sacrifice to God, you need to know that it is well-pleasing to him. It's one that he delights in. The, the term uses good in front of acceptable, it's, or good in front of pleasing, and he's saying, not only is it pleasing, but it's well-pleasing to God. We find that God, is, as far as the New Testament is concerned, um, tells us that he's not interested in sacrifices or offerings. Really, that's not what he was ever looking for. What he has been always preparing is a way for his incredible love to be shown to us. And the way that his love has been shown to us in the sacrifice of Christ has put an end to all sacrifices because it was by that one sacrifice and all the things that that accomplished, um, which Paul has, has um, prepared us for with his teaching all the way through the letter of Romans. Um, Jesus has come to end sacrifices. And Paul says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, here's something I would suggest you do. Here's something I would urge you to do. Bring a new kind of a sacrifice. Bring a different kind of a sacrifice. In fact, bring a living sacrifice. And, and you'll find actually that the living sacrifice that you bring is holy and acceptable to God. And that is your spiritual act of worship. It, the, the term spiritual act of worship or service of worship is again a familiar word in the sacrificial language but when we come to the word spiritual some translations will call it reasonable and some will call it spiritual you could translate it either way it's, it's actually a transliteration of the term logical so a logical service of worship is what Paul says he's urging us to bring because as we bring what's logical 
we bring no longer a, a, a sacrifice in, in terms of something that has been slain, but it's logical and reasonable and spiritual for us to bring ourselves and say, what is it that God really wants? And what God really wants is not something to be slain, but he wants the lives that we live. There's a spiritual application, of course, um, that teaches us that we are to die in certain ways. And all of that has to do with our sanctification, with our um, becoming holy people and so on. But here, what Paul is urging us about is the, um, the opportunity to, to reflect on and respond to God's incredible mercy by giving our lives to him. And, and so we, we might ask the question, well, why do we give our lives to him? And un- unfortunately, I think we, we drift into some wrong-headed ways of thinking how this could be true. Um, do we do we give our lives back to God for atonement in in some sense? I mean, is there some way in which giving my body, my physical being, my living being to God um, pays for my sins? Is is that what it is? Is is it no longer a sacrificial system, but is it me saying, well, I will sacrifice my whole self? to atone for my sins. That's not it. And in fact, many times we, we drift into wrong-headedness about that because we will feel as though we, we live the way we do or we should live the way we should so that we pay God back, right? So that we, we pay off the debt. And it's, it's as though, and, and it's, it's a very popular notion that there's a good pile and a bad pile. That if you're, you know, if your good pile's high enough, you get to heaven. If your bad pile's too high, you don't get to heaven. And so we have this kind of um, legal notion that there's something that has to be paid off. There's some debt that has to be paid, or, or something that has to be satisfied. And and that's not why we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Second idea is that it's some kind of quid pro quo deal that we make with God that that if since he has done these good things for us if we do these good things for him then that's good you know we're being good partners he has done something good for us on the quid pro pro is or quid pro quo is he's done something good I'll do something good and at the end of the day maybe God will say "Ah, fair is fair it all worked out all right that's not that's not what the the living our lives for him is all about i think it's actually not even absolute surrender even though that's a popular way to go about this and and there even are books and and um you know sermons about this that that romans 12 one is about absolute surrender well it is in in practical ways but dynamically, it's not um, a requirement of what God has done. So it's not that I'm required to absolutely surrender because of what God has done. It's logical that I will, but it's not required that I will. And one of the things that we have the hardest time understanding is that there is no way 
that we can in any way um, repay God for what he has done. Someone has said there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. And also there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. The, the incredible story of grace and the reason for the therefore is that all of the things that Paul has, has trotted out in terms of God's mercies towards us, they're all absolutely free. I don't know if you've ever had a, a situation where you've gone to pay for something expecting that there was a bill and the person has said to you, it's, it's um, no charge. And there's something human about us that says, what do you mean there's no charge? There's always a charge. There's always some cost for something. And what if a person said, no, absolutely free. And we maybe don't want to accept something absolutely free. We'd like to think somehow or other we deserve it or somehow or other we're paying for it. Or, you know, maybe we'll say, well, here, at least let me give you this. And, you know, maybe the vendor uh, says, no, nothing. It, there's no way you can pay for this. And, and the truth is, if we can actually size this up, there is no way. There's nothing we can do that can, can in any any way pay for what God has done. The price was way too high for any human being to be able to accomplish or uh, contribute to, to the transaction. What, what, what God is saying to us is, all of the things that I've been doing through time and all that I've done through my son Jesus is absolutely by grace. And that means, no matter how you work this out in your head, none of what you do um, is equal and opposite or quid pro quo or atoning or, or, or anything or, or even and at least let me do this much. None of that matters for God. He has no interest in what you have to give. And he, he may look at what you propose to, to give to him and he kind of looks and says, well, that's kind of cute, but it's not going to work. I didn't, I, I didn't need you to try to pay for this because I knew you couldn't. And, and so not reluctantly, but out of the enormity of my grace, I have done all that I've done for you and it costs you nothing. Nothing that you can do can ever merit what I've done for you. And so that releases us from the burden of trying to please God or pleasing other people even in the guise of pleasing God. When we're able to say, I know that I have nothing to bring. And God says, well, good, that's a really good place to start. Because the people who think they have something to bring are starting with a problem. Uh, the people who realize they um, have nothing at all are the people that God can smile towards and say, good, it's going to be easier for you to accept my grace, my love, my mercy, because you know you can't pay for it. I, I don't know if you went to see Les Mis or if you've read Victor Hugo's Les Miserables, which is a delightful uh, novel written by Victor Hugo. Um, it, it's, a, it's called one of the six best novels or stories that the world has ever told. And the story of Les Mis is, is a beautiful image of Romans 12.1. 
if uh, if you're looking for something to watch, I commend go to Netflix or uh, your favorite provider, and and you'll find Les Mis there. And it it's the story of Jean Valjean, um, Hugh Jackman, to those of you who are interested, um, and. He's a, a person, and the the actual story that that um, that Hugo wrote is is a bit more complicated than than the Les Mis um, Broadway production or or a Hollywood production. Uh, the story is of of a, a pauper, really, a very poor man called Jean Valjean, and early in his life, he steals bread to feed uh, family members and is caught. And because of what he's done, he's, he's sentenced uh, to prison and is, is sent away to pay for his crimes. When he has served his time, um, he comes out of prison and um, he, he enters into the life of, of a, a peasant. Um, and he, he, he tries to work his way out, but what is... N- not welcome anywhere he goes. He's an, an ex-convict, and um, and and then because of his his lot, he he ends up into petty crime again, and and is is being searched through the whole story by this notorious gendarme who becomes the villain of the story. And a- as the story begins. Um, Jean Valjean is is starving and he's he's in wretched shape. He's he's skinny and dirty, and can't find any way out. and And so he happens upon a monastery, and there's a monsignor signor there who who actually lets him in and 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 says, um, "We have a fire here for you to be warm. We have bread for you to eat." We have a bed in which you can sleep. And um, Jean Valjean accepts the hospitality, but the the desperateness of his life overcomes him, and he steals the, the silverware from this place. And the Monseigneur is um, uh, confronted by some of the, 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 the ladies that make the arrangements there, and they say, Oh, our, our silver has been stolen. Our silver has been stolen, and he's nonplussed and says, "Well, it, it doesn't matter. It wasn't my silver or our silver anyway," um, because he said, "The silver that we had belongs to the poor, and I've stolen it from them, and so it it wasn't ours anyway." And and so the you know the cook or w- whatever was just saying well how are w- what are we going to serve food on all of that kind of stuff and the monsignor was was nonplussed and let it pass until some gendarme arrived with uh, Jean Valjean and they dragged him in and said uh, we came across this character and he had a basket of silver and he said that you gave it to him and Jean Valjean is uh, utterly dejected and we're sure now that he's going to be thrown back in prison and there'll be no redemption for him. And the Monsignor says, yes, um, yes, I, I did give it to him. And Jean Valjean is surprised and, and looks up in the gendarme thinking this is strange. But um, 
But then the, the Monsignor says, but I'm not very happy. I'm, I'm angry about something. And the gendarme then began to wonder what he was going to say. The servant cook or whoever was, was saying, well, I know what's going to come here. And then, um, and his, his name was Bienvenue, Monsignor Bienvenue. He said, because I, I, I gave him two candlesticks as well, and he forgot to take them. And so he said, here are the candlesticks. You should take them as well. And he put silver candlesticks into the bag and wished Jean Valjean grace on his way. And the, the gendarme said, well, if, if that's it, you say that his story is true, that you gave these to him and, and he's free to go. And the Monsignor says, yes, he's, he's free to go. Um, but just as the policeman left, um, this wise priest speaks to him and says, now, you know what's happened here. Um, I've paid for your soul and you need to live for God. And the rest of the story is, of course, the delightful story of his spending his whole life um, taking care of an illegitimate girl um, and then, you know, all of the, the ways in which he spent his life doing good, um, living up to what the Monsignor had, had called him to. What I'd like to just have you dwell on for a moment is the two candlesticks. Can you imagine? Here's a, a guy who has stolen he has stolen from the people who were caring for him. They're the first kind souls he'd come across in months or maybe years. And now this kind soul from whom he has stolen simply says, there's more. Why didn't you take this? And I'm angry that you didn't take the two candlesticks as well. That was enough for what was required of him um, to be his pursuit in life where he spent his life trying to be climb, climbing back up but trying to do good and be the person that this priest um, prophesied him to be. R Romans 1 to 11 are the two candlesticks. They're the way in which God not only did things that were full of grace and mercy, but they abounded in grace and mercy. I mean, suppose the, the priest had said, well, yeah, he stole my silver, but I'll forgive him. The priest said so much more than that. He said, um, he, he, he didn't take, the other things that I had for him. And so in that moment, just imagine being overwhelmed by the kindness of this priest. Never mind what the priest would require. That's, that's kind of theologically beside the point. But here he is, and he's being lavished with more than he could have possibly expected. He, at at best, he might have expected that the priest would seize back his silverware and, and you know, send him 
you know, chided out into the dark. But the priest is full of kindness and good, and he abounds in his mercy. God abounds in his mercy for us. If we can even stretch our minds to understand the things that he has done and then realize that what he has done, we can only assess to it to a very, very limited degree. And then we would have to say, and it is so much more. That's why, as, as I say to you so many times, that Paul writes extravagantly. He can never find enough words to say the things that he wants to about God. Uh, and so he'll use terms like abounding and in richness and overflowing and incomparably more. And it, it's as though the, the candlesticks are being placed in the bag and God is saying, there, all of this is for you. And Jean Valjean, or would, would Jean Valjean would say, I, I, I don't deserve any of it. And God would say, that's true. I urge you, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercies, that you give your bodies as living sacrifices, not to pay anything off, but because you will, if you understand what God has done for you by his love and mercy, you will live the same way. Because every time you'll be inclined to go back to the old ways, you'll be overwhelmed by the image of two candlesticks in your bag, more than you deserved, more forgiveness than you deserved, more love than you deserved, more grace than you deserved, more more, more than you deserve. So Paul says, here's some advice to you. I urge you by the mercies of God, give everything back to him. It's not to pay him, you can't do that. But because of what he has done, surely you will live differently. You will put the big things first in your life. God being the biggest, greatest reality, source of love and grace and mercy. And may your life become the life of a great story of having been saved from the desperation of what you were and could be uh, into the bounty of what God has made you and given you. Um, Jean Valjean became the mayor of a town. How could that have been? He was a slave. He was a convict. Um, who are you? What has God made you? What does God have in mind for you? Because it, it surpasses the greatest thing you could aspire to. Um, because you are now someone who he has found and redeemed and forgiven and filled with his Holy Spirit. And so... I urge you to give everything. And as you do, realize none of it is required, but it's a way that you can worship God. God bless.